Terry Crosby. Andy Steiger. Steve Kim. Welcome to the AC Podcast. On this podcast, we want to help you understand and speak the language of our culture and address questions being asked with intellectual honesty, gentleness, and respect. Hi, listeners. It's Andy Steiger. Thank you for joining us on the podcast today. I did just want to make a quick disclaimer. The content that we'll be discussing is of a mature subject matter. So, I would encourage you to use some discretion with whether or not your children are listening. I probably would say that they need to be at least 13 years of age or older for the content we're going to get into. Also, just wanted to say... We have a group that we've been developing of law students and lawyers that are interested in these sorts of subjects. So if you are one of those, by all means, reach out to us at info at apologeticscanada.com. We would love to be in contact with you as we continue to build a group of like-minded thinkers. Thank you for joining us, listeners. Great to have you back. Good to be in your presence, except not... (laughs) Yeah, we sound are, wave presence. We are officially social distancing with Steve by a whole province. Yeah, I'm yeah. glad I see you. Now you see your spit guard is up. Yes, I have a That's spit guard up. I am fantastic. I have a a yardstick that I hold out in front of me. <laughs> to make sure I Terry, have a hockey stick. Make sure no. Terry doesn't get too close, and I whack him. Have you seen an image of that guy who's at this grocery shop and he's got these like six foot pool noodles? Attach them on his head on all yes. four sides or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That uh, that's, that's how we podcast. So good. So good. All right. Keep your distance. Uh, guys, how are you doing with your uh, pandemic? I'm an introvert. I can be very much a couch potato if I wanted to be, but even I am feeling <laughs> really restless. Like the last couple days has been pretty brutal. Um, not being able to see people and you know as much as i love my family i think we're all built for more than just our family we're built for community outside of family as well and so it's been pretty pretty tough um i did have a a moment of relief though when the other day the weather actually here has been really nice all of a sudden it got really warm the last few days and so is that by that do you mean like negative 20 negative 15 actually you'd be surprised <laughs> yesterday it was high of 19 oh wow um, but the thing i find here is that when it gets warm it warms up really quickly um that is celsius by the way for all of you yeah celsius that's right and so then uh just the other day for those of you who don't know this, I happen to be living across the street from my brother-in-law and his family. And so they were out on their front yard. And so my parents-in-law showed up and then, you know, we went over there to just kind of hang out, but we were all keeping our distance. So we were talking to each other from one end of the lawn to the other kind of thing. Um, but it was nice. It was a moment of relief, right, to be able to see family again outside of our immediate family. Yeah, Steve, there's a number of people that have been getting creative. I've seen uh, pictures of people who uh, will go tailgating and they'll uh, drive over to their parents' house, throw the tailgate down, and <laughs> have a couch on the back of their pickup truck and just chat with people, you know, that are yeah. across the lawn. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah you got you to get creative during these social distancing times and making sure you're getting some uh, much-needed relationships. Well, I, was, I was feeling a little squirrely yesterday. When are you and not last, feeling squirrely? And last night. So 
I did probably the most social what? distancing thing that you could ever do. What did you do? I went for a run at 11 o'clock. Of course night. you did. <laughs> <laughs> you, you are a sick individual. <laughs> I just had to have my headlamp, me and the whatever else out there. Do you know, this is interesting because there are moments when you're driving along and you'll see some maniac out there with a, a light, you know, in the dark. Bobbin. Yeah, bobbin. And you're like... <laughs> What on earth is, you know, and I'm it's always... me. There's, right. There's no I, other car there. Because I'm always thinking, this must be criminal activity. <laughs> <laughs> but, but now you know. No, it's just Terry. Yeah, yeah. What, what was it so, like running in the dark? Oh, it's fantastic. It's fantastic. I think you even work a little harder because you don't see what's ahead of you as far. You know what I mean? Mm. So you were hoofing a little bit more, I think. So you get a little bit more of a And then workout. you can pretend periodically like something's chasing you. And Oh, for sure. <laughs> there probably is. <laughs> <laughs> I just don't look behind. A little more ump in your, in your run. That. Yeah, yeah. So that was fun. I think I finished uh, after 12 sometime. Midnight run-ish. It was fantastic, dude. Interesting. Fantastic. And, and the, they have been some beautiful days lately here in British Columbia. Yeah. Uh, I, this has nice. been a gorgeous April. Uh, and it has. Thank yeah. Wow. It's made social Thankful. distancing yeah. and the whole uh, quarantine thing more bearable. Listen, we're getting into a, a topic today. It's something I've been working on for a while now. Just to give a little bit of background for those of you who haven't heard how this unfolded. But during the summer, I had the opportunity to present a paper on the topic of dignity and technology at Cambridge University and at the World Congress on Philosophy of Law in Lucerne, Switzerland. They had this dinner that took place at the end of the, the conference that was like straight out of Harry Potter. It was like this 100-foot table. <laughs> and like, I've never seen a table so long. Uh, and it wasn't very wide, so you could talk with the, you know, the people around you, obviously. But at this table is when I found out that the UN was at the conference. I didn't know that. So this girl, representative from the UN that's working on a project, talked to me about an aspect of my paper and gave me the opportunity to submit a proposal for a project that the UN's working on right now. So I submitted my proposal. It was accepted. And then I just recently finished my paper and submitted that uh, to the UN. And the project that they're working on right now, which I think is, is a really important project, and is actually something I'm hearing countries around the world debating right now. And so I think this is kind of the impetus with the UN kind of stepping into this conversation at the moment. And that is the ethics of technology. And as we often talk about that, you know, technology is racing ahead and ethics is trying to keep up. Uh, this project with the UN is seeking to close that gap at some level in which different scholars are addressing these issues of dignity and technology, but specifically with the focus on arguing for guidelines so that this could help as the EU is developing laws regarding these topics of technology and the ethics of, of So specifically, what will be your contribution to this amount of different essays and topics? Right. Now, this is kind of interesting, Terry, because I never in a million years thought I'd be writing on the topic that I wrote on. Okay. But at Cambridge, I used an extreme example to make my point. And this is what I ultimately developed. They want to develop more into an argument because this is such a big issue right now. 
And so the, the extreme example that I gave in my paper was this topic of something called pedobots. Now, a pedobot is a sex robot. It's a machine designed to look like a child for the purpose of sex. Now, I use the word sex robot because that is really being distinguished between a sex doll. So, a sex doll is very much just that. It's not a machine. It's more of a doll that looks like a human being, whereas a sex robot is a machine that is not only designed to look like a person, it's designed to behave like a person. So, you're talking like artificial intelligence. And robotics. So, in some ways, like Sophia, but, you know, for the purpose of sex. Yeah, and if you haven't seen Sophia, you know, you could Google that. And what you have is a mid-torso uh, machine that's designed to the best of their ability, yeah. <laughs> which is pretty pathetic, to talk and to show some level of expression like a human being. So you kind of define it as the humanoid, humanoid form, the ability to move, and some degree of artificial intelligence. That's part of the definition that you give, correct? Right. And I'm playing off of uh, a scholar by the name of Danner who uses this. There's a He's written a number of great articles. And there's a book that's out called Robot Sex, if people are interested in more essays on this subject. But that is absolutely key to this because there are important ethical implications when you make this jump between a doll and a robot that needs to be talked about more in society. And then you also make an important ethical jump when you move from an adult to a child. So, an adult sex robot versus a child sex robot. There are important ethical implications that follow with that that need to be discussed. Now, that's not saying that I'm okay with a sex robot that's an adult. I'm not saying that, but my paper is specifically focused on a child. I don't address the subject, not a lot at least. That's not the impetus of this work. It's really to focus in on children. And, and the reason that this is such a hot issue right now is the question that's being debated, and, and Terry and Steve have, have read my paper, so as we engage in this today, it, we wanted to talk about, you know, what, what is going on, but just to kind of lay the beginning of the, the groundwork here, the debate over this issue has been, will these pedobots lead to more harm or less harm for children? That's the crux of this question. So, this becomes what I refer to as the less harm thesis. And so, there are those out there that want to argue that we should, in fact, make sex machines that look like children that pedophiles could use or people who are attracted to children could use so that they won't harm children. Now, we did a podcast way back when on the Creeper Bill. And this applies to it as well. So, if people want to listen to that, because I don't think you're going to mention too much about that. No, just as a reminder, we have talked on this before. The Creeper Bill was a bill put before the U.S. Congress in 2017, but still has not moved anywhere. So, places like the United States, Canada, the U.K., there hasn't been a lot of movement on this issue. And we're seeing this particularly right now in New Zealand is being heavily debated where they're saying, listen, I don't, we don't think that this is the kind of society that we want where we're creating these sorts of machines. So, 
that's kind of the impetus of, you know, wanting to talk about this because this is being debated right now because it's such an extreme example of where the ethics of technology can just really go awry and people are going, wait a minute, we don't know that this is a good thing. But the problem is, and this is what we want to get at, is how do you argue against it? How do you argue against something that you don't have any evidence one way or the other because to get that evidence would be so unethical right to make a correlation between this you know this less harm thesis that you just don't have that research and so because that question mark's just hanging a lot of people now are just you know wanting not a lot but particularly those that are making these machines want to argue hey listen this is actually going to be a good thing and in case you're wondering, you know, is this just sci-fi? You know, is, is this just hypothetical stuff? No. There is a company in Japan called Trotla, and they create these machines for purchase. And they have reported that they have received orders from around the world. Now, people who have ordered these have been arrested, such as in the UK. They've been arrested for importing an obscene article. But that's the kind of the funny part here is that the law really hasn't caught up with this, so they don't even know how to prosecute this. They don't even know how to stop it because there isn't anything in place. And so this kind of then becomes the impetus with the UN wanting to address an issue like this is, can we say that this is dangerous? Can we put a law in place? One thing that I find right from the get-go when we're talking about this issue is as I'm, as I'm reading different things on this, most of the conversation seems to revolve around some kind of utilitarian ethic. Hence, less harm thesis, right? If it leads to less harm, if, if it leads to some kind of harm reduction, then it should be allowed. If it leads to greater harm, then it should be banned. But the problem with utilitarian thinking is there you could justify any number of evil acts in order to bring about a good result, but that doesn't mean that it is a good thing to do. So there are certain things like, for example, if I, let's say we're living in the Canaanite times and we want to bring good weather for the whole region, and so we start chopping up little kids and burning them at the altar of Baal or Molech or something like that, even if that does bring about rain, it would still be an evil thing to do. It would still be wrong to butcher an innocent human being. But that is the sort of ethic that I seem to see here. Does it lead to greater harm or less harm? This is one of the issues that I have with this sort of harm reduction ethic is that it doesn't take virtue into account, I don't think. And what I found with your paper, Andy, is that there is a very strong hint in that direction. You know, what does this to us, what does this say about ourselves? Even though you don't specifically use the word virtue ethics, that is the direction that you seem to be hinting at. Absolutely. The paper does hint at that. But it is a, this is an interesting aspect of what it's like writing a paper like this, where you have to stay laser focused. And you make an excellent point, Steve, and that could be an entire paper in and of itself. Mm-hmm. And it's one of those things where there, uh, it, it's a rabbit trail that's a good and important one. And so I have to constantly slap my hand when I want to head down those directions. And, and as you noticed in the paper, I did cite at one level different virtue ethics that have been cropping up lately. But yeah, that would be a route to go down. The challenge there is, though, that I find that that's going to be a harder case to win. Whereas if I can show that, in fact, this technology does lead to harm, 
and I can hint in the direction of virtue ethics, I stand a better chance of winning the case. Yeah. And that's sort of the feel that I got because one of the challenges with virtue ethics is that people can't seem to agree on what it means to be virtuous. And that was sort of the Achilles heel for Aristotle's virtue ethics, because he wouldn't have considered something like humility to be a virtue. But in the Christian worldview, that is very much a virtue. And it could be argued, too, that Aristotle's virtue ethics is really foundational to his racism. Right. Probably the biggest problem with his ethic was that it didn't have a telos. I mean, he talked about virtue and all of that stuff, but he didn't have anything to hang his ethic on. Whereas in the New Testament, we have virtue ethics, but we have the telos in the person of Jesus Christ. Right. And that's the challenge when we're dealing with these sorts of issues is we're dealing with a secular culture. So where can we find those areas of agreement Even when you're dealing with a culture that has a vacuum of telos, how do we move forward? Now, this is where I think the UN gets interesting. And as you guys saw in my paper, becomes a point that I try to create as a foundation is the Universal Declaration for Human Rights, that humanity has inherent dignity, equality, and inalienable rights. Now, those that have read that document know that it doesn't specify why that's the case, but that it is the case. So we can agree and work from there. However, I do think that it's problematic (laughs) because it goes back to what you're saying, uh, Steve, that it's got nothing to hang any hooks on because it just states these. Now, thankfully, we live in a culture that by and large agrees with this. However, you know, as we've been doing this podcast, and I hope those listeners who've been with us know, that constantly gets challenged. Before we continue, a message from Andy. Hi, everyone. This is Andy Steiger. I wanted to let you know that the 10th Annual Apologetics Canada Conference was a great success and that the conference recordings are now available. The recordings not only have all the sessions from the conference, including all the breakout sessions, but some bonus material as well. We have included a special class that Daryl Bach taught for us and Wesley Huff about how we got the Bible and can we trust the Bible. To purchase and download the recordings, go to Apologetics Canada. And now, back to the podcast. In this paper, I divide this argument into two different sections. The first one is asking whether or not a pedobot is a human or not. And so, I begin by making the case that a pedobot is, or a machine, is not and cannot be a human being. Now, this becomes the foundation to start the paper so that we can at least begin to agree that a machine is not a human being, which could create problems when you're going to try to argue against something like a pedobot, because now, and this is an argument that's often made, if the machine isn't a human and the machine doesn't have dignity, which is what I do argue, then some would argue, well, then you can do with the machine as you like. Now, what I wanted to do as I move into the second half of the paper is to begin to argue that even though the machine is not a human being, you still cannot do as you like with that machine because that machine, specifically an imitation machine, has implications to now how you view yourself and how you view one another. 
And this becomes an argument that I begin to develop against something like a pedobot. Now, this becomes an interesting argument that can help where there is a vacuum of research and correlation showing a harm from this sort of machine. Because we don't have that sort of correlation, however, I will just say this, and people might find this interesting, uh, there is a correlation between pornography and abuse. And there is a strong correlation in the research, aggressive or demeaning pornography and aggression and rates of reoffense on children. So, there is no doubt about that. There is a direct correlation there. The problem is though, right, is that pornography. So, now we would say, okay then, child pornography is illegal, which it is. The question though becomes, well, what about artificial pornography? So, for example, in the United States, it is legal to create pornography that is animation. So, it's not an actual person that's being harmed. It's this animation. Now, when we get into things like a pedobot, though, right, we've moved away from animation. Now, we're talking about physical acts with this machine that looks like a human being and raising this question, okay, but should that be allowed? It does raise other questions that I, you know, obviously can't get into in the paper, such as should we be creating that sorts of pornography? Should that kind of pornography be aggressive and demeaning, especially showing not only a correlation, but strong correlations of reoffense? You know, that's a whole nother discussion. I want to stay focused on this idea of pedobots. Now, although we don't have that correlation to show that having sex with this machine is going to lead either to less or to more harm, what we do have, and this becomes a way to get at this argument that I find compelling, is that research in dehumanization studies do demonstrate that if you objectify another human being, whether that be an adult, woman, or male, research shows it's for both, or a child, you will treat them in demeaning and harmful ways. And in fact, research came out that demonstrated that there is empirical proof, like it demonstrated, and, and, and I was surprised reading this research, how explicit they were saying, listen, this has been empirically verified that these sorts of dehumanization will lead to harm. Now, we've seen this historically, for goodness sakes. I mean, that's kind of the irony of all this, by the way, that this is why the UN created the Universal Declaration of Human Rights in the first place, was because of how we have demeaned and treated each other in the past, and the ways particularly that eugenics was implemented. And I would argue with what's being talked about through the imitation game, this is just a new form. This is a technological form of eugenics, of being well-born, right? That you have certain standards that people are seeking to adhere to, that you're going to grant humanness. So, in my argument, one of the things that I develop is something called artificial dignity, which I think is an important concept that I have been advocating for that can help, I think, provide some guidance when we're looking at whether or not a technology is dehumanizing or not and what sorts of regulations should be put on it. So, I make a distinction between weak artificial dignity and strong artificial dignity. And I want to just quickly talk about this subject. 
artificial dignity is important to think about when we're talking particularly about the imitation game, because going back again to this idea of inherent dignity and that inherent dignity is recognized, one of the things we have to think about is that when a machine begins to imitate a human being to such a degree that it's convincing, dignity is going to be recognized, right? If you can't tell if that's a machine or a human that you're interacting with, and that machine isn't a human, then that machine does not have dignity. However, the machine is able to reflect a level of artificial dignity to the degree in which it is convincing you that it's human. It reminds me of that episode that I did a while back when we invited Robbie Ray from Trinity Western University and we were talking about video games and how uh, the way we interact with these virtual images, even though they're just images of people, how you interact with it actually impacts you. And so even the fact that we have products, toilet paper with certain political candidates' face printed on it or something like that, uh, it tells us that we, we take these images seriously. Um, and, and so then insofar as a machine is made to look like little children in such a way that it's really convincing, because in a sense, that's the goal of these kinds of machines, right? It's supposed to simulate the experience as closely as possible. If we have that, then it's going to distort the way we view. We're actually acting out the kinds of things that we could do in real life with real children, and that's a great deal of danger there. In fact, this is what I call the dark side of the imitation game, and that is that when you're imitating a human being, it, it goes both ways. It could either be imitating a human being in a positive way that leads to humanization, right? That you're reflecting well the dignity of a human being. And we've seen different machines that can do that. And I think there are places in society for machines that can be good and, and useful. However, it can just as easily be demeaning. And so that the imitation that's being portrayed is not humanizing, it's in fact dehumanizing. Now, this becomes specifically problematic because a machine like a pedobot is not humanizing. The very purpose of the machine is inherently dehumanizing. In fact, it's inherently criminal what's taking place. You're acting out criminal behavior. Uh, you're acting out dehumanizing behavior. And I make the point in the paper that in fact, a machine like that teaches you to dehumanize. It's creating a level of dignity, human dignity, that not, again, not that it's human, but it's artificial dignity. So it's a level of artificial dignity that then you are denying the machine in the way that you are treating that, which we see a correlation with the way that you view a person and the way that you will treat that person. So there are a number of studies in the area of dehumanization that have come out. And by dehumanization, I simply mean to reduce a person to either an object or an animal. And in the case of machines, we see both taking place where people are dehumanized as both object and animal. 
And oftentimes we see this in, in there's been so much research that has been done with particularly our society and, and how we objectify women, for example, and view them as a body or a body part or sexual functions or, you know, we, we separate them from their parts. And in doing so, it affects the way that we see and treat that person, but also the studies are showing, this shouldn't be any surprise to us, it has profound effect on how they view themselves. Now, again, research has shown that this objectification takes place with both women and men, but one of the issues that we have seen historically is not just the objectification of women, but the objectification of children. And when you have things like pedobots, this is just a prime example of the objectification of a child as a sexual tool for your gratification, which will not only impact the way that you see children and condition the way that you see children, but it also affects the way that children view themselves. I remember reading an article written by a guy who used to be the editor of these... uh gentleman's magazine kind of thing, right? He used to advocate for pornography, but he later quit the porn industry. Now he's an activist against it. And he one time went into a school and started interviewing young teenagers, like we're talking 13, 14, maybe 15. And when he talked to the girls, the girls were talking about how they're having a really hard time fending off guys who, you know, like if they want to have any kind of physical intimacy, it is all based off of porn. And so what they saw on their computer screens or whatever, they would want to act out in real life. So it resonates with me when you say that these things will actually translate into how things are done with real people. And imagine that. Imagine a child that grows up in a family where dad has a pedobot, for example, or grows up in a family where Uncle Bob has a pedobot, right? Now, this is an important part of the imitation game that is often overlooked. In fact, I, I haven't heard anybody talk on this, this aspect of the imitation game, and it's an important aspect when we're talking about something like a pedobot. And I'm curious what you guys thought about this argument that I make. And that is that with the imitation game, the standards are much lower when we're talking about children. The standards are lower, first of all, because it's easier to imitate a child than it is to imitate an adult. So, it's easier to reach a strong level of artificial dignity when you're dealing with a child than it would be with an adult. It's easier to create something convincing. But then secondly, when you think about this being viewed from the perspective of a child, they are much simpler judges of the imitation game than an adult is. So then, if a child is conditioned to be around a pedobot, is conditioned to see that sort of intimacy being played out between a pedobot and an adult. This is going to have a direct effect on the way that that child's going to see themselves as it's going to normalize this behavior. And again, the degree to which the child is convinced that that pedobot is a human, which wouldn't take a lot or wouldn't take as much, nearly as much as an adult, and in fact, I argue that technology is currently capable of convincing a child. And so, we have to think about the responsibility that we have as a society to protect 
the vulnerability of our children to this sort of technology that could be used by a pedophile to lure children into this demeaning and criminal behavior and condition them to see this as a normal thing, which we as a society have said is not. You also say in the paper that they also place not realistic as in that that pedobot likes sex. Right. One of the things that takes place then with these pedobots is these pedobots are designed to imitate the user's view of a child, to imitate what the user wants. So then that pedobot can be designed then to have orgasms. It can be designed to enjoy that. So the machine then is able uh, to imitate the user's view of the child. So, for example, a lot of pedophiles or a number of pedophiles have reported that one of the reasons why they have harmed children is because they didn't see it as harm. They believe that children enjoy having sex and that they believe that this is pleasurable for not only them but for the child. And so, that's one of the reasons why they'll take advantage of children. So, you can imagine then that if they have a pedobot, clearly they're going to have that pedobot programmed in such a way, you know, that that pedobot enjoys having sex and can have an orgasm and those sorts of things. Again, a child that interacts with that, that is going to have profound implications on the way that that child views themselves. Now, my point in bringing all this up is these are such important topics with regards to how far technology already is, where we need to act and implement laws to protect those that are vulnerable, particularly our children, from these sorts of technologies. And so, as you can imagine, in the paper, I make the argument that this sort of technology should be outlawed, specifically machines that are creating realistic human forms that are using robotics, that are using any form of AI, should be outlawed. And one of the reasons that this should be outlawed, and it's an aspect of the imitation game that's often overlooked in the area of technology, is that this technology is is not successful, but is seeking to be successful. So the imitation game, you know, the technology will never stop where it's at, because the purpose of the technology is to convincingly create a human being, right? So the technology will keep advancing till it gets to that level that it is convincing. And so we need to be regulating these sorts of things before they achieve or are successful in their purpose, sooner, obviously, rather than later. So just to clarify, when you say these things should be outlawed, Are you talking specifically about the kinds of machines that are created to look like human beings that are made for demeaning kinds of activities? Or are you saying this sort of human mimicking technology wholesale needs to be outlawed? Yeah, it's a good distinction. Thank you. In the paper, I stay focused on children uh, and pedobots. So I argue that with regards to demeaning. Now, because I've argued that pedobots are inherently demeaning, then a pedobot straight out should be outlawed because you can't make a non-demeaning pedobot. So then you could, although I don't go there, one of the things you could talk about with regards to this for other areas is, yes, I would argue, and maybe this is the topic for another paper, that machines designed to look like or imitate humans should not be designed to be demeaning. 
or to participate in criminal behavior. So this could have implications with regards to whether or not a machine could be created to act out rape fantasies and, and these sorts of things. All right. We are going to leave it there for now. That was uh, a in- very interesting read. Thank you for joining us, listeners. The AC Podcast is the Ministry of Apologetics Canada, and we'll come back next week with more things to think about.